morning again, I invite you to take your Bibles this morning open to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, as we continue in our series here around the birth of Jesus, as we look at different passages from the Old Testament that we often read or cite this time of year. Our series is entitled Christmas in the Old Testament, so we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 7, uh, verse 14, which is probably well known to you. We've already heard it this morning, but we'll look at the surrounding context and what God is doing through this promise that he made that a virgin will conceive and give birth. Let's pray as you find your way there. If you're using a pew Bible, it should be page 572, 572. Father, we thank you for the opportunity again to sing praise to you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, as we've just sung, the three in one, the one in three, all praise belongs to you. Through you, God, the Father, keeping the galaxies in line, to the Son who has been sent and died and raised again and is coming back, and to the Spirit that now indwells our hearts and equips us the help of the word to live for you, Lord, all for you. Three in one, one in three, Lord, we thank you. And as we come to your word this morning, may you give us understanding and insight, and help us to be challenged, to trust you more in spite of maybe uh, the things that we deem impossible, Lord, are possible for you. We love you. We pray in your son's name. Amen. You found your way to Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 10 through 17 uh, this morning. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. It is too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, and behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the, good, the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. You've probably heard this phrase, prove it, right? Prove it. It's a phrase used by people in response to a claim that someone or something will happen or somebody can do something. I remember growing up with my friends in the neighborhood and thinking with our bikes, oh, I can jump off that curb. Prove it, right? Prove it. And so we would do our best attempts and maybe we'd fail and we'd have some excuse. Oh, well, the wind was coming out of the wrong way. And <laughs> maybe it's a sibling. I bet you I can do this. We'll prove it. Um, I remember one of my friends, we were racing down a hill and there was a culvert. And I said, I bet I can ramp off of that. And he said, prove it. And so I went down the hill, hit the culvert and my 10 speed huffy hit that culvert at the wrong angle, it wasn't my fault, it was the culvert's fault, and I went flying over my handlebars into the night squishy ditch down there, and I remember picking myself up, thinking I look like a fool, getting my bike, and getting back on my bike, and watching my front wheel kind of do this, 
the rest of the way home. Prove it. We, we, we say something, and then somebody wants us to show that we can follow up with what we say. Right? It's a, it's a claim that we can follow through on a promise, whether it's a direct action by an individual or the sharing what was witnessed. Have you heard? Yeah, prove it. Show me. Demonstrate it. Throughout the Old Testament, there are many, many promises made by God. Many promises that he has made concerning a variety of things. But perhaps here, this is one of the most well-known promises that God has made. And one that we often think of this time of year. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He will prove it. And how will he do this? The sign is, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And there's much more to this context, to this passage, than just that promise, because that promise fits inside a whole discussion that Isaiah the prophet is having with King Ahaz. Now you hear Isaiah 7:14, and your mind instantly goes to Mary and Joseph and Jesus being born, as it should. But right along with that, should be King Ahaz. And I'm sure all of you can say, well, I know exactly who King Ahaz is and what his problem was and what Isaiah was talking about, right? Mm, probably not. <laughs> That's okay. There's a lot of kings in the Old Testament and we're more familiar with some more than others. But King Ahaz here is important to this promise. He's important to this promise because... The promise that was made to him is in response to his own lack of faith in God. That God can do what God can do. And Isaiah the prophet, who speaks on behalf of God, says, Ahaz, God's going to do something that you wouldn't believe. And in demonstrating his power, he's also going to do something that will impact the entirety of humanity. Our big idea from this passage is this, is the sign or the promise or the prove it of the virgin birth reminds us that God's faithful plan endures in spite of sinful man. The sign of the virgin birth reminds us that God's faithful plan endures in spite of sinful man. Originally given as a sign to God's faithfulness to the house of David and to the kings of Judah and of God's sovereign protection of it from its enemies. This sign is given by God miraculously through a virgin who will be a reminder that God indeed is with us, not only alongside of his people, but actually becoming one of them by taking on humanity. So as we think of God's faithful plan, Enduring in spite of sinful men, let's look at the Old Testament context of this promise, which will be our first point and the failing of sinful man. And then we'll look at how this comes to pass in the New Testament and how rather than failing like in the Old Testament, the ones who receive this promise respond in faith. So our first point is the failure of man in the Old Testament. They trust man more than God. Trusting man more than God. Isaiah is a prophet. Isaiah is one of the major prophets, not because he's really awesome and better than the minor prophets. 
is that he just wrote a lot. <laughs> he has a lot of prophecy in his book, 66 chapters. And Isaiah is often referred to as the messianic prophet. Much of what Isaiah prophesies about is about the coming Messiah, the one who is going to be sent by God as his anointed one, the one who's going to come and make all things right. There are some wonderful passages in the book of Isaiah. There's Isaiah 52 and 53 that talks about the suffering servant, which we often read around Easter, how Jesus endured such terrible punishment and mockery for our sins. There's Isaiah 40 in the surrounding chapters, right? The, the, the young man might grow weary and stumble, but those who wait on the Lord will have wings and they will renew their strength. It's the reminder to us that God is the one who's ultimately going to bring these things to pass. There's Isaiah 6 and Isaiah's uh, vision of the throne room of God and him seeing the glory of the Lord and him becoming undone and saying, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. And then the angel coming to Isaiah and purifying his lips with the coal and, and someone saying, who, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. But in chapter 7, 8, and 9, we have this prophecy concerning a child and concerning a ruler and how this child and this ruler is going to be different than any king that is currently ruling or reigning or has ruled and reigned in Israel. In chapter 7, we are presented with Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Judah, the nation that stayed more faithful than the northern ten tribes, the nation of Israel, than the nation of Judah. And the nation of Judah and Israel were often at odds with each other. You had the northern ten tribes, and then you had the southern two tribes, and they would often go back and forth in, in skirmishes and battles. And there were kings of the north that did not like the people of the south. Think of Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, they weren't fans of the nation of Judah or of the prophets of God. But in chapter 7, we're introduced to Ahaz. He is the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And he is ruling and reigning here in Judah. It's around 735 B.C. He was king. He is not known as a good king. <laughs> he trusted man or feared man more than he feared God. What is happening here is that the northern tribes of Israel have made an agreement with the nation of Syria. And they are, in a sense, on the doorstep of Judah. And they are planning war. They are looking to come and to conquer King Ahaz and his realm. And Ahaz, he's afraid. He's scared. So what does he do? Does he turn to the Lord and say, Lord, <coughs> excuse me, help us, deliver us? No. He turns to a more powerful nation and says, will you help us? He turns to Assyria. He turns to this nation that is utterly pagan and despicable before God. And that is where he puts his trust. He puts his trust in this pagan nation and he makes this agreement. And he makes this agreement thinking that it's going to be on level terms. But Assyria is much more larger and powerful than Ahaz and Judah. 
Ahaz has put his trust in man more than God, specifically a sinful nation. And Isaiah comes to him and confronts him of this activity. He confronts them and says, you are not firm in faith at all. You will not uh, come out of this in a good position. And Isaiah brings to him, though, a word of hope. And he says, you have the opportunity to be encouraged and to turn to God and to trust in him. That brings us to chapter 10. And this is amazing. Because here is a desperate situation. King Ahaz, in all of his foolishness, in all of his sinfulness and his idolatry, has turned to a pagan nation for protection from his enemies, rather than turning to God. Now, he is king. He would have the records of all of God's doings in the past, but yet he still turns his eyes away from God to a pagan king for protection. But God still has a message for him, and still gives him an opportunity to turn and to trust him. Verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. How does the Lord speak? Well, the Lord speaks through his prophet Isaiah. In this passage, we'll see how the Lord speaks and Isaiah speaks, but yet it's interchangeable because Isaiah is the Lord's mouthpiece, as the prophets were. So it would be Isaiah speaking, but in a sense, as Isaiah speaks, he speaks behalf, on behalf of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Verse 11, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. <clears throat> so Isaiah comes to him and he says, the Lord has spoken. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Ask a sign. This, this word sign is the idea of evidence or a testimony or a witness. He says, ask God to do something for you. To show that he is with you. To prove it. Now, if you had that opportunity, do you think you'd be like, this is awesome? If a messenger of God came to you and said, the Lord says that you can ask for a sign to show that he is with you in your choice, in your life, in the way that you're going, would you take that opportunity? Because I think selfishly, or maybe sinfully, all of us would love to have some sort of affirmation from God that we're doing the right thing, right? God, this is a difficult choice. Show me that you will be with me. Show me that, that this choice in this difficult situation is the right one. Write it in the sky, right? Make something happen. Gideon did it with the fleece. He said, Lord, make the fleece wet and the ground dry. Make the ground dry, or the ground dry and the fleece wet. And God condescended to Gideon and demonstrated that he is with him. It was a sign. Here, Isaiah is speaking on God's behalf to Ahaz and says, hey, God will be with you. What kind of sign do you want to show you that he is with you? He says, let it be deep as Sheol, meaning as deep as the grave or as high as the heaven. This hyperbolic language is showing the extremes that if you ask something, that is, is so extreme that you don't even think God can do. He, he'll do it, right? Lord, make me a burrito so big that I can't eat it. That will be my sign, <laughs> right? Lord, put the hair back on my head. That would be a wonderful sign. Yeah, I say many out there say amen, right? Isaiah is saying, ask something extreme, like from, from the heights of heaven to the depths of the grave, 
God will show you that he's with you. What a promise. What, what an offer by God to King Ahaz. He's saying, hey, I'm here. Let me demonstrate it. Well, what does Ahaz do? Verse 12. He says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz responds by saying, no, I'm not going to ask God to do that. I'm not going to put him to the test. And you hear that and you think, well, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty righteous answer. Good job, Ahaz. When you stop and think about it, though, it's really a poor answer. We understand from Deuteronomy 6 that we're not to put the Lord to the test. We're not to, 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 to confine him to how we think he should operate. But that's not what's happening here. Here, the prophet is coming to the king and saying, this is what God is offering. You aren't putting God in a box. God is asking you, what do you want me to do? He is coming to Ahaz and saying, Ahaz, I'm going to do something for you. What do you want me to do? And Ahaz says, no, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. He responds in a way that looks pious and holy and righteous on the outside, but really demonstrates his unbelieving heart on the inside because his mind is already made up. He doesn't want to hear from God because he wants to trust in this alliance that he's made more than in what God can do. Why would Ahaz prevent his own God from demonstrating his love for him? It does not make sense. It does not make sense. While it looks like Ahaz is taking the high road, the pious road, he is in fact demonstrating his lack of faith in God. His mind is already made up that he would rather trust in his poor agreement with Assyria rather than submitting himself to the Lord and his ability to deliver the nation. He responds in a way that on the outside looks pious, but on the inside is just full of unbelief and lack of faith. And we see the response of Isaiah, verse 13. And he said, that is Isaiah, said to Ahaz, Hear then, O house of David. Remember, King Ahaz is a king. He's from the house of of David, The house of David was given the promise that from David there would be a descendant of his that would rule and reign forever. And so the house of David is this whole collective idea of the ruling kings of Judah. And Isaiah says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Isaiah says to the king and in a sense to all of the kings of the line of David who have failed again and again, Listen, you, you cause headache and heartache for the nation, for the people, and now you're causing a headache and a heartache for God? We see the exasperation in Isaiah, and he is demonstrating how Ahaz's response is not a pious one, it's a foolish one. He's saying, now again you are wearying men and the Lord communicates frustration on behalf of the prophet towards the Davidic line. And that's what Isaiah expresses. But yet, even in the midst of this frustration, God, through Isaiah, speaks of a sign. Isaiah offered to Ahaz, ask for a sign to show that God is with you in the midst of the face of your enemies. And Isaiah, Ahaz goes, I can't do that. I'm going to put the Lord to the test i.e., I don't care, I don't want to. And Isaiah says, no, the Lord will give a sign. And we see that this sign, in a sense, is given to Ahaz 
but it's actually given to the whole house of David. Hear then, O house of David, this Davidic line, this line of kings that was to be the promise receivers of this eternal inheritance. God is going to himself give a sign. This is one of the most quoted Old Testament verses, especially during the Christmas season. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The Lord is the author and the source of this sign, and he himself gives it. It's a very personal way and demonstrating that this sign is from no one but the Lord. For the Lord is the only one who could do something like this. What kind of sign is this? He says, behold. It's the idea of listen, see, observe, pay attention. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Who is this virgin? We don't necessarily know in the giving of this promise. But she shall conceive. She shall be with child. And not only will she be with child, but it will be specifically a son. God makes very clear what gender this child is. It is a boy. And this boy will have a special, specific name and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, there's some discussion here in regards to that term virgin. There are two, old, uh, two Hebrew terms that would refer to a, a virgin. There is the direct term virgin, somebody who has not, a woman who has not known a man. And then there is another term that is more equatable with the idea of a maiden, a young woman who's of marriageable age and of childbearing age, but yet is not married. The second term is what's used here. So it's not the direct term for virgin, but it's this term that refers to a, uh, a woman who is of that age who could, if she was married, give birth. And a lot of ink has been spilled upon why this word was used and not this one, but it's very clear that the term here is referring to a miraculous conception because it's really not necessarily that big of a deal if a, a woman who is, is married and has had relations with a man for her to become pregnant and give birth. That's, that's how God has designed it. But for a woman who is a virgin to conceive, that is something completely different. And the Jewish theologians who translated the Old Testament into Greek clearly understood this term to refer to a virgin, and it's what the gospel writers understood it to refer to as well in Matthew and Luke. But here is this miraculous conception that Jesus, Emmanuel, which we'll get to in a little bit, this woman, this virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And that name is interesting when we understand it in this context because Ahaz is afraid for his nation. He's afraid that his enemies are going to come and wipe it out. And God is trying to remind them, hey, I'm with you. You don't need to fear, but you are fearing, and so you're turning to a pagan, evil, sinful nation. But I'm going to bring about this miraculous birth, and this child is going to be a reminder to you that I am with you. 
I am with you, Ahaz, for I am the Lord. The rest of this passage, 15, 16, and 17, gives evidence to the fact that these nations that Ahaz is so afraid of will pass away. They will be destroyed. And there's much discussion as to what it means of knowing how to refuse evil and choose the good and eating curds and honey and and all of the specifics here. But it's very clear, Isaiah is communicating to Ahaz that in a short time, these nations that you fear will not be on your radar at all, for they will be overtaken. But it's interesting. There's going to be a difficulty, a day that is difficult. Verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house. Such days have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Wait a minute, didn't Ahaz just make an agreement with Assyria? Yes. And Isaiah is saying, God is going to be with you. Here is the sign. But understand this, you are going to reap the fruit of your poor, foolish choice. You are afraid of these nations. They're going to be done away with. But you know what day is coming? The days that is difficult since the, the split of Judah from the 10 northern tribes is the king of Assyria. The one you are making an agreement with is going to come and to rule and to inflict judgment upon you. And they do. There's evidence that Ahaz and the people had to pay tribute. They were subjected to this kingdom of Assyria. They themselves were put in a difficult position because of Ahaz and his poor choice. But yet, we see here the promise of God. What precipitated this promise of Emmanuel is the fact that the king of, a Davidic, of the Davidic line turned his trust from the Lord to man. And not only to a man, but to a pagan nation. What does God do? Here is the king of Judah, the descendant of David, the one who's supposed to lead his people, but yet he says, no, God, I don't want you. I'm going to put my trust in this pagan nation. What does God do? Does God say, hey, guess what? I'm done with you. Wiping my hands. Does he forsake Judah? Does he utterly destroy them? No. He promises that he will be with them. He will do something that only he can do as a sign of his faithfulness to the nation. Ahaz trusted man more than God, which brought about his destruction. But yet even in the midst of that, God's faithful plan was not thwarted. It endured in spite of sinful man because of God's faithfulness. And that takes us to our second point here. Those who trust God more than man. And we see this fulfillment of this promise. There's much discussion in regards to this promise. We understand very clearly that Jesus is a fulfillment of this sign that was given. But oftentimes there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment when it comes to the prophecy. And so some people look for a near fulfillment of this promise. We read of a child being born to Isaiah in chapter 8. There's also a child born to Ahaz. But yet, as we look at these different circumstances and the different evidence found here in the book of Isaiah, there are a lot of weaknesses to all the positions. So rather than saying, well, this is a near fulfillment, this is a near fulfillment, we're not aware of a direct near fulfillment in the life of Ahaz. 
but we are very clear and can understand very easily the far fulfillment of this promise of God in the New Testament. If you would, take your Bibles and flip over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we read of this fulfillment of this promise. While the many ideas of a near fulfillment in the book of Isaiah and all the scenarios, they have their, their weaknesses and their holes, but we understand what does not have its weakness is the New Testament fulfillment of this promise. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Matthew recounts for us, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew recounts for us here this miraculous virgin birth. The birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. Mary was betrothed. She was engaged to Joseph before they came together, which is a polite way of saying before they had marital relations. She was found to be with child. A virgin had conceived from the Holy Spirit, verse 18. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, was going to put her away quietly, not to bring shame upon her, but to put her away. But yet God intervenes. He sends an angel to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of who? Son of David. Son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, call him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And Matthew adds this narrative comment. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. What prophet is that? It's the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Some 700 years later, this sign that God has promised has fully and clearly come to pass. God comes to this young woman, Mary, and through the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon her, she conceives, and it's a son. And Joseph, the father, the adoptive father, was going to put her away quietly, not wanting to cause her any shame, but yet the Lord comes to him and says, do not put your wife away, for what is happening is from me, son of David, house of David, line of the Davidic kings. This is what I am doing. 
And Matthew adds this. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 700 years earlier, God made a promise that he would perform a sign that demonstrated that he is with his people, that he is with them, that he is for them, that he will continue to love them and guide and direct and lead them to show that he is their God. And 700 years later, this is coming to pass. And what strikes me is the response of the people involved. Here is Ahaz, a king, who is speaking with a prophet, and the Lord says, what do you want me to do to show you that I am with you? And he says, I don't really care. I'm going to trust in man. And the Lord says, fine, I'm going to do something that is going to be very clear and distinct to remind you, house of David, Davidic line, my promised kingly line, that I am with you. 700 years later, he brings it to pass. And as this, un, or this young woman who is engaged to this man have this happen to them, and you think that they're scared, they're asking the question, what in the world is going on? And rather than trusting in themselves and what they think is right or what they would do or what the other people around them say, they respond in faith. They trust God more than man. And the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And what's even greater than the reminder that God is with us in the sense that he is alongside of us, right? I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I, I'm there with you. But rather, he's saying, no, I, I'm, I'm with you. I am one of you. I have taken on flesh. God isn't up in heaven saying, hey, I'm with you down there. Got your back. No, he's saying, I'm with you. I've become one of you. I have taken on flesh. I am participating with you. It's the idea of not only observing and thinking, but participation. God is with us, literally. He has taken on humanity. He is Emmanuel, God with us. <clears throat> God is able to do what man cannot. <clears throat> this miraculous event shows the power of God in delivering his people. While Ahaz put his trust in man and failed, those who put their trust and hope in God will be delivered. Joseph and Mary both responded in faith and what God had said. Rather than seeking the easy way out or trying to improve upon what God has said, they accepted the impossible because they knew God was in control and God was with them. God has not forsaken his people, but he has become one of them. He has humbled himself. And in his humility, he will save his people from their sins. He will deliver them from the ultimate enemy of sin, Satan, and death. God can do the impossible. This is Mary's account in Luke chapter 1, verses 34 through 37. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. 
Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Ahaz, the Davidic king, the one who should have trusted God, put his trust in sinful man and turned from God. And God said, I'm going to give you a sign that's going to demonstrate that I am with you, even though you are sinful and you make a poor choice. 700 years later, that sign comes to pass. And not only does God bring it about, but he does it in such a miraculous way that it demonstrates that his power and his sovereignty is over all. And that not only is God with us in the sense that he sees us and he knows us and he's watching us, but rather he is with us. He becomes one of us. He's taken on humanity. And he's become one of us so that as he lives as one of us and as he dies a human, physical, painful death in his humanity, he pays the penalty for our sin so that we can have forgiveness of our sin and be made right with him. The impossible is made possible because of God. In spite of sinful man, God's faithful plan endures forever. And that's what the virgin birth shows us. This time of year, my prayer is that our faith would be, faith would be strengthened and that we'd remember that our hope is not in mere man, but in the God-man, the fact that God is with us. He became one of us. The one promise in spite of a faithless king has become the faithful king who will save his people from their sins. Jesus is great David's greater son from the Davidic line, the promised one born of the virgin without sin. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Therefore, whatever enemies we face, whatever difficult circumstances, and above all, the greatest enemy, which is our own sinful nature and our own sinful standing before God, we have hope because God is with us. May we remember that this time of year as we remember the virgin who was conceived. It was in response to a faithless king that the faithful king was brought about. Father, thank you for the opportunity to reflect upon this passage and the reminder that we are not called to trust in man from our own perspective, but rather to put our trust in you. Even when things seem so difficult and so impossible, you are a God who can do miracles. Lord, help us to continue to trust in you in the midst of difficult circumstances, a sinful world, as we remember this time of year, how a virgin conceived and gave birth, that you are at work in every aspect of our lives. And may we trust you and look to you in spite of our circumstances for the hope and the power and the strength to endure. Lord, we love you. Pray in your son's name.